Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap and Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast arguing the case for the illogical in baseball. Baseball is at its best when there are clear, identifiable storylines. Now, each postseason has its narratives. You could have two or three really great teams. You could have a couple of teams that are, you know, have just snuck into the wild card, you know, with, let's say, 82, 85 wins. Not great teams, but... And then it becomes really a, a crapshoot. <laughs> you know, you might have a game seven, which is just the romance of, you know, winner takes all. You know, if you have a sweep, you know, it becomes pretty clear by sort of games two, games three, that... This team is dominant and is like is going to win, but they aren't storylines. I think a storyline in the the best example would be the Red Sox Yankees in the early two thousands. You've had the two thousand three ALCS, in which Aaron Boone hit a walk off home run in Yankee Stadium in the eleventh inning and defeated the Red Sox. You then had in two thousand four. A rematch in the ALCS, the American League Championship Series, where the the Yankees were three nothing up, game four, they had a one run lead at Fenway Park, and the Red Sox over four nights came back and became the first ever team to you know have come back from an O three hole to to win, and then won the World Series and broke the curse of Babe Ruth. Now, in some ways, the Red Sox-Yankee rivalry in, in that era overshadowed baseball to an extent. Is that so much media attention, so much hype. But what you'd had is you'd had a Yankee team that in the late 90s, early 2000s were dominant. You know, they were in the World Series most years. They were winning 90, 95, 100 plus games. You had Trotore, you had Steinbrenner, you had the Core Four, you had Jeter. All of these stars, all of, and in New York, one of the biggest media markets in America. And then you had the, the Red Sox with having not won a World Series since 1918, you had all of the heartbreak, all of the neuroses that the fan base had, and that they were in the AL East, so they were battling against each other every single year, 19 games a season, and the rivalry and the fact that they're you know, geographically quite close. You, know, you have Red Sox fans working with Yankee fans, both franchises became almost inseparable. There was a, it was an arms race. If one team traded for a pitcher, the other would have to get an outfield. It, you know, they were often going after the same players. There's the famous story of um, Theo Epstein um, trashing a hotel room in um, Nicaragua when um, he tried to get Jose Contreras, a great starting pitcher who had come out of Cuba and had lost in the bidding process to the Yankees. Destroyed a hotel room. You had in 2003... The Red Sox were trying to trade for Alex Rodriguez, who was then with the Texas Rangers. They had a, a deal greed in principle, and eventually it foundered because um, A-Rod's contract was $252 million over 10 years. It was the, at the time, it was a huge contract. It still is even now, but then it was just a monster contract. No other sport had a contract of that length, of that kind of, the weight of money. And... The irony is, is that the owners of the Texas French at the time were called um, were Gillette and Hicks, who eventually um, took over Liverpool and almost ran Liverpool into the ground. So this is a, and the thing is, is that Abel was a wonderful shortstop for the Seattle Mariners, and he came to Texas with this huge pressure of this massive contract, and no matter how well he did. It was so lopsided, the contract, in comparison with the rest of the team, is that they were always a you know, bottom of the AL West. They, were, they just couldn't produce a, couldn't put a successful team out there with this contract. So they traded it, and the point was is that the Red Sox couldn't quite take on all $252 million of this. What they were trying to do is get A-Rod to basically agree to restructure the contract and to lower it. 
and the MLB Players Association just nixed it. Because obviously the, the underlying principle is, is that if one player does it, then all the teams could sit there and go to their star players, to anyone, actually, can you just cut your contract? And so instead of going to Boston, he ends up getting traded to the Yankees. And it's just, it puts so much pressure. I mean, the, one of the great examples was is that um, the Yankees at shortstop had Derek Jeter. The Red Sox had Nomar Garcia-Para. They were both good, at, you know, all-round shortstops. Both had gone through the, you know, been drafted and gone through the minor leagues. They'd come out around about the same time. So there was always this natural sort of rivalry. And when it came to sort of 2004, they had this very famous um, Red Sox-Yankees series, start of the season. And the thing about Boston is, is that it's, in comparison with New York, so New York you have several different teams. You have the Mets up in Queens, you have, you know, the Islanders, you have the Knicks. While the Yankees are huge, they are not the be-all and end-all. Whereby the Red Sox, because they are, you know, there's only one baseball team in Boston, and so and it is a baseball town. Although obviously with the success of the Patriots, you know, they're you know New England Patriots are important, but that's more slightly more regional, and obviously the the, the NFL season doesn't particularly overlap with the baseball season. So for the most part, the summer, Boston is a Red Sox town. And so as a result, the pressure on the players, especially in the years before the World Series win in 2004 and the, you know, the follow-on successes, is that the players felt a tremendous amount of pressure. Whereby Derek Jeter, you know, by the time he'd been three or four years in the league, already had three rings, was a, you know, a hero. You know, was someone who was venerated by the Yankees. He was a true Yankee. He was, you know... A continuation of you know all the great captains of of Yankee yore, whereby with Nomar, you know he got injuries, you know he wasn't quite as effective as he had been maybe two or three years earlier, and the pressure had worn on him, and he wanted out. So he sat out one of the games with an injury, and the consensus seemed to be at the time that he wasn't really injured; he was just unhappy, and he just needed a change of scenery. And in this game, it goes to extra innings. It's at Yankee Stadium. And a pop-up goes into the seats. And Derek Jeter's charging after it and throws himself headfirst into the stand to make the catch. And he comes out. He's caught the ball. And his face is bloody and cut. And it just seemed to everyone at the time that Jeter has shown this huge sort of commitment. You know, unbridled. You know, whereby you had Garcia Parra sitting on the bench. And so there was a symbolism to that, and as a result, every single move that the Red Sox made after 2003, after that crushing defeat, the thing is, it's it's hard, perhaps for a, I think an English audience really to, I suppose, grasp the extent of it. And without wanting to go spend 15 minutes, you know, telling you all the story of how, you know, the, the Yankees have won all these World Series, the Curse of the Babe Ruth, I've done that in a previous podcast. I think the, the simplest thing to say is that at that time, there was a, you just felt that the Yankees always win. They always found a way. They, you know, if they had started injuries to their starters, they would find someone in the minor leagues or a journeyman would turn up and for three or four weeks would just be world class it almost seemed at times almost sort of quasi mystical that somehow the Yankees were just fated to always win so in the 2003 season the Red Sox had a really powerful offence they had to cut some great starters and it got to game 7 at Yankee Stadium it's the eighth inning, and the Red Sox are leading. This is finally their moment. You know, the, the cowboy up Red Sox. They have finally broken the... and are about to win in Yankee Stadium in Game 7 to go to the first World Series since 86. And the possibility of them playing the you know, Chicago Cubs, who were expected to 
win the NLCS against the Florida Marlins. So it was going to set up this just titanic World Series. You had the curse of the Billy Goat, the curse of Babe Ruth. Outfits that hadn't won the World Series for 80 plus years. Someone was going to break their curse and it was going to be against each other. Someone was going to be absolutely devastated and and one fan base was going to be in raptures. You had two old stadiums, you know, famous arenas. You had Fenway Park, you had Wrigley Field. Everything was just set up perfectly, you know. In Game 7, the Red Sox had Pedro Martinez, who'd been their fantastic starting pitcher for years, a future Hall of Famer. And all you need is six more outs. You know, your starter is still on the mound, is still going strong. And then it fell apart. So prior to the start of the 2003 postseason, the Red Sox front office had basically crunched the numbers and had said that Martinez... You know, at this point, he was nearing the sort of end of his career. He wasn't quite at his peak, which was really sort of 2000, 2001. He was still a great pitcher, but not quite the same level of dominance. So that generally what they said is, the numbers dictated that after about 105, 110 pitches, he starts to struggle. You know, he's out of gas at this point. Now, Grady Little, who'd been a charismatic kind of old school manager, he had this kind of sort of country charm to him, which then led to the, the you know, first baseman, um, Kevin Millar, calling him the cowboy up Red Sox. And so he goes to the mound and instead of, he allows, you know, Pedro to stay in. So it gets tighter and tighter. The Yankees, you know, basically make a comeback. They tie the game. So having been, you know, sort of Four one up, it's now four all. They bring in Tim Wakefield, who at that time had been, a, you know, had done really brilliantly well in the series. Comes out of the bullpen, and in the bottom of the eleventh, gives up this hot, you know, this crushing home run, you know, to Aaron Boone, and immediately, you know, Grady Little was fired, even though he'd done a fantastic job taking them to the, you know, on the brink of the World Series, and on one judgment call, had been sacked. And there's a question mark over whether it was fair or not. He'd been warned. But in this Game 7, he saw his best pitcher on the mound and went with his gut. And it went wrong. But it's not so much whether the decision was merited, but it was a mission statement of the organisation, of the Boston Red Sox. Their fans were heartbroken. It's one thing to be effectively a handful of outs away from the World Series. And this was a period of time in which World Series for the Red Sox was generational. You know, you had 46, 67, 75, 86. That was it. You could go 10, 15, 20 years. You know, you just had... Your dad would have a Red Sox team that got to the World Series. Your granddad would. This was your team that was going to go there. And so as a result, and because it was the Yankees, because it was at Yankee Stadium, because the Yankee Stadium erupted. It was a home run off a knuckleball. So it was a, a floating pitch and Aaron Boone crushed it into the night. It was a no doubt home run into a seething mass of Yankees fans going mental. It looked like the Yankees were just always going to win and the Red Sox were fated never to win. So they making that statement was is that it wasn't good enough. That you couldn't you know, you couldn't make that mistake against the New York Yankees. And in some ways that was illogical, but it was successful. You know, they hired Terry Francona, who won the World Series in two thousand and four, the next season, won it in two thousand seven. The thing is, the counterfactual element is, is that in the next year, as I've said, the Red Sox were 3 nothing down. They were three outs away from getting swept by the Yankees. So it doesn't mean that in some way, shape or form that somehow Terry Francona was a much better manager than Grady Little. He's, I think, a bit better, but not gratuitously that much better. But the point is, is that you then had to make moves. to. They had to go one step further. And so the Red Sox traded for Kurt Schilling. They needed another world-class starter. And as part of that, to get the trade over the line, they, you know, Theo Epstein, the general manager, went to Thanksgiving dinner with the Schillings. It was that kind of need, that desire to, 
win and to change the narrative. And so, in 2018, the Red Sox played the Yankees in the postseason for the first time since 2004. And at first, you were really excited. It was two really great teams, both had won 100 games. No, it's Red Sox Yankees in the post, and it brought, brought back all those memories, but it didn't feel the same. You know, partly because in in some ways the, the, the shoe was on the, the other foot, in that the Red Sox had now been winning World Series, and the Yankees hadn't won a World Series since 2009. But I suppose in some way, shape or form, since, you know, George Steinbrenner had died, I think the ethos and the way how the Yankees are run has, has fundamentally altered. You know, with George Steinbrenner... He's a controversial figure. He, he... At heart, he was a showman. If you left him to his own devices, as an owner, he was substandard. You know, he was uh, too emotional, too impulsive, you know, lacked, I suppose, foresight. But what his legacy is, is in conjuring a spirit of winning and an understanding of how the Yankees should win. It was, the, it was really the genius of understanding how the general sporting public perceived the Yankees as this historic, dominant, you know, powerful, you know, winning machine. So not only did the Yankees, in Steinbrenner's mind, the Yankees had to win, they had to win in all different facets of the game, in terms of media attention, in terms of prestige, in terms of intimidation factor. And really what that did was that sparked the rivalry with the Red Sox. It played into the sporting neuroses of Boston fans. You know, the, the classic example was Larry Licino, who was, you know, part of the sort of managing group of the Red Sox, you know, dubbed them the evil empire. They always had the largest the largest payroll they always signed the best free agents they were always winning year after year you know anything short of winning the world series was considered failure but now we've got a situation where since he's died his son's taken over who's a far more neutral figure you know he's not a figurehead he's not somebody who is in the press He's someone who wants to run the Yankees as a profitable, successful sporting outfit. He's kept, you know, the general manager, Brian Cashman, who's been there for you know, sort of twenty years, and the Yankees are incredibly successful. You know, they haven't had a below five hundred season. In other words, you know, losing more games than they won since the you know eighties and early nineties. That's a phenomenal amount of success, year on year, always winning more games than you've lost. You know, with no drop-off. And it's not just, you know, being near 500. It is winning 90, 95, 100 games year after year. But the point is, is that the last few years, the Yankees haven't, you know, for the first decade since the 1910s, the Yankees never got to the World Series. Despite this phenomenal run of consistent success, they've never particularly been that close. You know, the closest they had was a Game 7 of the ALCS against the uh, Houston Astros in 2017. So they'd lost the first two games in Houston, won the next three at Yankee Stadium, and so they went back to Houston for Game 6 and potentially Game 7, one win out of either one of those games, they were heading to the World Series. They scored one run, and they were fairly easily beaten. They were just dominated by the Astros' starting pitchers. Now, the Steinbrenner would be that somebody would have to be sacked. Some would, you know, you'd have to then the next, you know, season, next off season, you'd have to sign some big free agents. You'd have to do something big to let everyone know that this wasn't going to happen again and that this year the Yankees were going to win. Whereby, 
the last oh, two, three, four years, they've been very cautious. They've kept their... They haven't given out huge free agent contracts. They've made you know a couple of trades. Probably the most um, significant one was the Giancarlo Stanton one, where they took on a fair amount of money. But at no point have they been the same... The same monolith. You know, the last time they really made kind of a, a huge splash in um, free agency was the 2008-2009 off-season, where they signed T.C. Sabathia, Mark Teixeira, off of the, you know, off, off of the Red Sox. The Red Sox you know, were expected to sign him, but the Yankees blew them out of the water with you know, 15, 20 million a couple extra years. And then that's, you know, in 2009, they won the World Series in a fairly dominant manner. You know, everyone talks about sports in terms of business. We have so much more data. We have so much more information. And I suppose fans look at things in a very different manner than they did in previous generations. We, have, we now focus on payroll. We focus on, you know how you know the youth team is doing how the minor leagues are doing you know we we think about you know five year plans rather than you know looking at each season as its own as its own standalone you know you just think of the season as it is in other words next season is the most important season and with that extra information you know Baseball fans are more savvy, and sports fans in general are more savvy. But what happens is is that you, you start to lose things. Fans become less uncompromising. They start to think, okay, well, maybe in two or three years, you know, we'll be better then, rather than win now. Which, to my mind, is sad. For all of Steinbrenner's faults, for all of his... You know, the controversies that surround him. You can never deny that the man was committed to winning. He was committed to the idea of the New York Yankees being this dominant, successful outfit. That baseball was better when the New York Yankees was good. Because people needed a team to look up to, a team to hate. You know, he used to tell the story of when he was a, when he was a child living in Cleveland. That he would go down, down to the hotel where the Yankees would stay when they were playing in Cleveland and watch the, the baggage get delivered. You know, just simply the Yankee baggage was something that would be, you know, special and important and something that would capture the imagination of, you know, baseball fans, of children. You know, fans need these guide points. They need validation of the emotion. A unifying sense that everyone in the outfit, in the team, feels the same way. From the players being devastated at a, you know, a key loss. That management is. That the owner is. And really what this leads into the discussion about the Red Sox firing Grady Little in 2003. Comes down to Dave Roberts, who's the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the Dodgers haven't won a World Series since 1988. Over the last you know five ten years, they've had a tremendous level of success in the AL West. They you know, win the ALS year on year, and you know they got to the World Series in you know, 2017, 2018, and lost both. You know they lost in a game in seven games to the Astros and lost in five to the Red Sox. Each year. You know they have they've had high payrolls. They've made, you know, they've made some relatively big sort of free agent signings. They're a brilliantly run organization. They have a huge amount of talent in their minor leagues, and yet they're lacking something. You know they, you know, in terms of the bullpen, sometimes with the starters. And also with the manager himself, you know, he's made some, you know, poor decisions in the postseason. Now the, the difference is, is that managing in the postseason is, I would describe a faintly traumatic experience. That there's huge amounts of pressure on you, out by out. 
Now, whereby in a 162-game season, your best skill as a manager is you know, keeping everyone on the same page, not too high, not too low, making sure that your you know, starters are, you know, in terms of pitching, you know, are getting the right amount of innings, that you're not tiring them out, that you're you know, carefully managing the bullpen, that you're you know, making sure that, that playing time is you know, well managed, and just keeping everyone, keeping everyone focused, keeping everyone trucking with the same underlying ethos of you know you're getting to you know getting into the postseason, winning the division, and you know Dave Roberts has done a great job in terms of you know they win the division, they always win ninety plus games, and yet when it comes to the postseason in the sort of chess match, sort of three dimensional chess, and under the He's not really been up to the job. And yes, to an extent, it is you know, it is nitpicking. But the point is when you have had a team of the size of the Dodgers in terms of the large amount of resource they've had, in terms of you know the, everything that they have in terms of the stadium, the history, the fan base, they need to win now. And so... The key question that you have to ask yourself is, well, what are the Dodgers saying by keeping him on? So I, I guess on the plus size, you know, you're saying that there's no scapegoats, that it has been a collective failure, that the front office didn't, you know, use the resource they had in terms of, you know, young, talented, cost-controlled minor leaguers to trade for the relief help that the Dodgers needed in that their closer, Kenley Jansen, is in the slow decline phase of his his career. He's had injury problems. He's not the player he was maybe three or four years ago when he was an absolutely dominant receiver. Reliever. That there's continuity. In other words, they're not making a rash decision just for the sake of making a decision. But on the minor side, it's a stasis. It's a lack of urgency. It's an acceptance of failure. It's an inability to define to the fan base how victory will be achieved and sealed. Now, what are they going to do this off-season and next season and next post-season that they couldn't have done this year? If it was simply the case of needing a reliever, why didn't they get one this year? You know, if Dave Roberts isn't the best postseason manager, you've known that really since 2017. He's had two World Series. This is now a, you know, a third postseason where he has made tactical errors. And that those errors have led to the Dodgers losing. In other words, they shouldn't have been losing in Game 5 of the NLC, you know, NLDF, the division series against the Washington Nationals, when... You have the lead at home in with six outs to go and your closer in the bullpen. And that you, know, you have three or four different options to get those six outs. You know, you go with a starter, Clayton Kershaw, who is one of the pitchers of his generation, but is now you know, in the slow, gentle decline phase of his career. He has a somewhat spotty postseason track record. Now he's not someone who has a huge amount of experience coming out of the bullpen. He's done it a couple of times and a couple of times it's been successful. But to have a lead, to have given it to him, in some ways it felt almost like they were trying to create a narrative that, you know, he was going to be the one in game five that was going to come out of the bullpen and helped the Dodgers get to the NL championship series. But within six pitches, he's given up two home runs, goes to extra innings, and then, you know, they still haven't used the closer. Bases are loaded. Grand slam. And it, in basically the space of effectively two innings, they've gone from winning to being knocked out to the eventual champions. But it was a position of dominance that the, the Dodgers should have closed it out. You know, as wonderful as the Washington Nationals are and as amazing a... Narrative it is that they've won the World Series. The Dodgers were a substantially better team, you know, who had 
all of the resources that in some ways that the Nationals didn't have, especially when it comes to the bullpen and the payroll side of things. Um, the writer Will Leach has sort of dubbed this decade the data decade, and I'm inclined to agree. And so with this rise in, you know, in terms of next generation statistics, in terms of information that's now available, what that has done is you've, you've, you've got the cult of the general manager. It used to be in baseball that the, the manager, the person that you as the fan saw on television or in the ballpark, was the general. He was the one that you know decided who started. He made the, the calls in terms of playing times. He was the tactician, the field general. He was the leader of the organisation. And yes, there were general managers, and yes, they were important, but they weren't front and centre. They were the person that just gave the manager the tools, and it was the manager that was the one that brought everything together. Now that's very much changed. You've now got a sort of increasing fetishization of the, the controllable manager. So usually they're young, you know, inexperienced, haven't managed in the minor leagues, don't have a, a tremendous track record. What they have is the skills to, to empathise with young players. Baseball is trending increasingly young. You're not getting the stable of veterans that you had a generation before in the 90s where you'd have four or five six and actually having the experience to know how to manage the egos the bodies the playing time and to command respect of these people who've been playing the game five ten fifteen years that necessitated having a strong manager who would be able to deal with this now when you're getting increasingly young players what you need is someone who who can manage their development, someone who can understand what they're going through. And so these younger managers who've only been, you know, finished playing maybe two, three years ago, people who've been working in television, so they're very good at putting a message across and setting a tone. But as a result, they're not particularly fantastic tacticians. They will make naive mistakes, whereby your great tactical manager is perfect for these postseason games. But may well lose the group during the regular season. But it, the element is is that the front office wants to have a manager that is reliant on them in terms of... So in other words, it's the front office that provides the data and the framework and it's really the, the manager's job to pass that information across. Manager isn't necessarily making as many decisions off of his own gut. So in other words, what I said earlier, talking about Grady Little, he was given a, what can only be described as a heads up, that Pedro Martinez would tire somewhere between 105 and 110 pitches. Now what you're getting from front offices is just packets of information. You know, how many pitches the, the pitchers should use, how many innings, you know, what sort of stress level. So in other words, the pitcher may only have thrown 80 pitches, but if they've been to particularly high stress innings, so that's you know, 20 plus pitches, you might want to get the player out rather than trying to squeeze an extra inning to get to five innings or six innings and how they manage the bullpen. So much more of it is now controlled from the front office than it was in previous generations. And as a result, you've had a situation where You've weakened managerial independence, yet conversely, they're still the first people to get sacked. You know, pitching coaches, hitting coaches. You know, the Washington Nationals manager. You know, they had a terrible start to the season. They were in back end of May, nine and thirty-one. The manager pretty much had a week to save his job, yet the general manager, who is now the one who's really in a lot more control in terms of the players that he gives the the information they don't get sacked. Or if they get sacked, a lot rare, they're given a lot more time to enact their their philosophies and their five-year plan. And in some respects, it's created almost like a hive mind between baseball front offices. They tend to be looking at the same information, getting the same level of, of understanding these 
people generally tend to be you know coming out of a handful of sort of Ivy League schools. So as a result, especially when it comes to free agency, they all tend to you know everyone is zigging. No one, very few teams seem to be, you know, zagging in that regards. You know, and it creates a fallacy. You know, the cult of the general manager is that everything can be controlled. In other words, once you have the data, once you have the minor leagues, once you, you know, get the cost control, once you micromanage every single part of a baseball season is that there's a logical ending that if you follow the set principles so for example if you take the Astros and the Cubs they had years of losing you know effectively tanking which allowed them to collect draft pits allowed them to you know give young players an opportunity and so that eventually once they had a strong set of young talent they were then able to expand their free agency and signing just a you know a handful of you know high priced you know starters and position players and then this would lead to success so they break into the playoffs and then eventually win a world series now both the Astros and the Cubs have done so they followed that method and a lot of other baseball teams are doing it so really you've almost created a donut league You've either got a handful of teams that are dominant, so you're saying the you know, Astros, the Cubs, the Yankees, the Red Sox, who are perennially you know, at the upper echelons. They're qualifying for the playoffs year on year, usually averaging 95 to 100 wins. And then you have a second tier of teams that who are in deep development. So you've got the the Tigers, the White Sox, the Marlins who are all, you know, refusing to sign, you know, veterans who are all trying to effectively do the same thing. You know, a few years of, you know, losing that will eventually lead to a sustained period of success. And I suppose in some ways what that means is is that you've either got teams winning 95 games or losing 95 games. There doesn't seem to be a particularly middle ground. Either everyone is, you know, uh, you know, the second division is, you know, going for jam tomorrow, and and the upper tier are benefiting from, you know, the of their long-term planning, of their focus on youth development, on their focus on analytics. And that eventually you can almost create a a self-perpetuating win cycle. And yet, neither the Astros, who have come really close to a dynasty in terms of, you know, they've got to two World Series in three years, and they've just won the one of them. You've had the Dodgers, who've gone to back-to-back World Series and haven't won either. And you had the Cubs, who, when they won their first World Series for 100-plus years, there was this belief that they had so much young talent, they had so many position players, you know, they had pitches all under you know, contract, that they would then dominate the sport for the next three or four years. And in some ways they have done. In other words, all of these teams are winning 95-plus games. They're all getting to the postseason on a year-on-year basis. But none of them have actually gone on and really, truly dominated. Now maybe you can say that that's because the you know, postseason is a crapshoot, but to me what that really means is, is that there's a perception of success and that you have the success of what people, what fans would consider success, which is broadly speaking getting to the postseason and winning. And then you've almost got the sort of general manager's perspective. And it seems to be far more just perpetual contention. And because you have a donut league, the bar needs to be raised. In other words, it's not difficult for the Dodgers, the Astros and the Yankees to sustain 95 plus win seasons. There are some teams who aren't 
trying to be the best team they can be. They are thinking of 2023. So they are poor teams. They are teams that are losing 95, 90, 100 games. You know, there seems to be this perception that these teams can succeed every single year. And really, yes, if that success is just getting into the postseason, but but to my mind, how can Brian Cashman and the Yankees say that the last decade for the New York was great? They never won a World Series. They never got to a World Series. Therefore, the bar has to be higher. In other words, I don't think in the way how the postseason is structured now with you know, three or four rounds, with the pressure that it puts on a pitching staff to pitch for another month on top of the regular season, which is already gruelling enough at 162 games, that you can actually win year after year. You can get close, but even the Astros are you know, starting to fray a little bit. Some of their young pitching hasn't done particularly well in the minors. Their, you know, their prospects in terms of the lower minors aren't quite as good as the you know, previous four or five years. You know, some of their players are getting older now. Their contracts are coming up for you know, free agency. And it's a choice of do you let these players go? Do you sign them onto long-term contracts? And then, you know, what does that do to the payroll? I suppose for me, the question is, what really is the difference between the sort of five, ten years where the Arsenal under Wenger didn't win anything but consistently qualify for the Champions League and the five, ten years of Cashman where they have always finished above five hundred and have broadly always got to the playoffs. You know, yes, it's slightly unfair, I think, you know, in terms of... In some ways it's unfair, I think, in many ways the Yankees have done well, and in some ways they have been unlucky not to get to the you know, World Series. But by the same point, this year the Yankees needed a starter. And they probably needed some bull some bullpen help, and they had the prospects, they had the money, and they stood pat at the deadline. They didn't make the you know, the next signings that they needed to, to get to that level. And it seems to be happening more and more. There's not the same urgency that the Steinbrenner years had. Now, that didn't mean that this, every single trade that the that Steinbrenners did in the you know mid two thousands and the early late nineties worked, but that was the point. You knew where you stood with the Yankees. You knew as a baseball fan, you knew as a Yankee fan that they were going to do everything they could to win that year. Even if it meant in the long term they might have given up a you know prospect that was you know that could have helped them. That wasn't the point. If you had a Yankee team that was near enough to winning the World Series that was your priority, not jam tomorrow. Because you have so much money with the, in terms of the payroll, in terms of the prestige of playing for the Yankees, that actually treating it like you're a small market Tampa Bay team that needs to hold on to their resource it is ridiculous. Now, are Dodger fans... Delighted that they've won 10 AL West titles in a row. That they keep getting to the postseason. Or are they more upset that they've not won one? Or that you'd rather... That you'd accept maybe two or three losing seasons. If that meant, you know, that you actually won one. That you got to the pinnacle. Which is what baseball is. It's entertainment. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be about winning. It's not supposed to be about maintaining a certain level of victories that is just that enables the front office to remain and for the front office to pat itself on the back for having done a great job and then just you know on occasions you know use the manager as a sort of sacrificial lamb personally 
I would say that the Dodgers should have sacked Dave Roberts. Now, I think Dave Roberts has the potential to be a good manager. I do think that he needs to reevaluate how he manages in the postseason because that's the difference. He is a good, a great regular season manager with the resource that he has, which is dominant. But he has not performed particularly well in the postseason, which is the difference between a good manager and a great manager. It's why Terry Francona is on the verge of the Baseball Hall of Fame as a manager, and Grady Little isn't. You know, the, the difference is, the gap between them isn't big. But the point is, that is the idea of the postseason, of the World Series, of the Championship Series is that it is fine margins. And that if you make two or three great decisions, you have won the World Series. If you make two or three bad ones, you go home. You know, the power of storylines and of illogic is the sense that is that it's a motive. Mike Illich is the, the probably the perfect example of this. You know, he grew up in Detroit. He wanted the Detroit Tigers to win a World Series in his lifetime. He was in his you know, mid-80s and he just put you know, a large amount of money into the payroll. It was win now. It didn't matter what happened in three years' time. It wasn't going to be his problem. He desperately wanted a championship. Now, I'm not the f- you know a cheerleader for ownership. Sometimes ownership is terrible, lousy. They often screw taxpayer, local taxpayers over. Often they are, you know, happily to screw players over. But I think in this instance, you people understood. Just Tigers fans, baseball, understood that this man was just the same as anybody else. He wanted to see his team win more than anything in the world. And he had the money to try and make that happen. And so he got, you know, a general manager in Dave Dombrowski. And the thing is, is that whereby the general managers that, you know, the Dodgers and the Astros and the Yankees have created these perpetual success without necessarily winning the whole thing, without winning the World Series, where it doesn't at times feel like winning the World Series is the actual apex. And it's just something that if it happened would be great, but actually really making sure that the organisation is ready to win 95 this season and 95 next season and 95 after the, the season after that is the most important thing as a baseline for actual success. The thing is, is that Dave Dombrowski begets tangible success, but it is short term. In other words, you know, with the Florida Marlins, with the Boston Red Sox, he will take you to a World Series, he will win you a World Series. Isn't going to be medium and long term. He will you know, trade young players for veterans. He will sign big free agent contracts that may be front loaded. That the bit, the opening bit of the contract is the bit that will get you the success. The last two or three years of the contract may not be particularly pretty. You know, you may have a veteran who is done, who is being paid fifteen, twenty million dollars, but you will have a World Series. You know, Dombrowski took the Tigers to the World Series, he took them to an ALCS, close. They didn't win it, but he at least put you there. And you can respect that, because in some ways it's a fallacy to think that you could get the Detroit Tigers on a year-by-year basis to be constantly at the top. The teams that are constantly at the top are the ones who have, you know, payroll, the fan base, the ownership that have that kind of money. The Tigers don't always. Illich was a was an outlier in that respect. Most ownership isn't as emotional in that sense of wanting a you know a championship you know, at at all costs. To conclude being somewhat illogical is in some ways being emotional and that's what sports fan fandom is it's 
being emotional. It's caring about it. Nobody wants sports to be like a a third quarter all hands conference call at work where it's you know all done via an excel spreadsheet where it's all about numbers that's not what i got into watching sports i care about I, i'm interested in statistics i'm interested in in elements of data but it's not the be all and end all it's the game it's winning, it's getting to the World Series, it's hoisting that trophy. And Storylines is the best example of that. It's more important that people understand <laughs> you know, what it means, that winning is wish fulfilment, that it's not guaranteed. And you know, for teams like the Detroit Tigers, who haven't won a World Series since 1984, no, you're not going to have perpetual success. Baseball doesn't allow for perpetual success really outside of, you know, outliers like the Yankees. You know, much in the same way that, you know, if you look at any sport, you have teams that are more often than not dominant. Australian cricket. You have you know, Manchester United, you have Liverpool, you have Juventus. There will always be that kind of element. Storylines capture the imagination of the casual fan. It provides a sense of meaning. I mean, take the, take the Washington Nationals. The point is they were desperate. Ownership, general manager, manager, the players, the fans, were desperate for the legitimacy of a postseason series win. You know, they'd got back into the playoffs. They had you know, had a couple of awful years where they got first pick in the draft and it was you know, Strasbourg and Harper. And they signed Jason Worth. They did a lot of what the Astros did. They did a lot of what the Cubs did. But there was more of a desperation to it. You know, they had heartbreaking postseason defeats. You know, when it seemed that they were just on the edge, like the 2003 Red Sox were. They always seemed to find a way to lose. There was always a bullpen collapse. There was always, you know, injuries. And so in the end, this desperation... It was done purely on short-termist means, you know, the Steinbrenner way. You know, it was, you could argue it was cack-handed. But the fan base appreciated and fed off that desire. They understood that they wanted to you know, get the best bullpen possible and they were willing to spend money, give up young players, even under the knowledge that those young players in two or three years might well think, oh, wouldn't it have been great if we'd kept him? But, there, you know, there's no guarantees. You know, showmanship is as much a part of baseball, you know, as being a custodian of the game. Yes, if you are completely, you know, Spock-like, yeah, a Spock-led general manager of, you know, baseball team, yeah, might well win 95 games every single year. And when it comes to the postseason, you know, throw up their hands and say, it's luck of the draw. But that isn't interesting. You know, it's not a reason why a casual fan would tune in. Too much of baseball is centred on what's happening in three years' time, and that when things go well, the people that get the praise are the general managers. Because they're the architects, they're the ones that build all of the... who've built it all, and that the manager is an offshoot. And yet, when you look at the actual postseason and how difficult and how pressurised managing is in comparison with being a GM up in the you know the posh suite in the stadium, just watching pass impassively on. You know, the, the Yankee ownership in allow has allowed the sort of the gilded stasis of the Cashman years. It is diluted the Red Sox Yankees rivalry. You know, it's weakened interest in the Yankees in general. You know, meaningfully speaking, well, what really are the differences between the Dodgers, Astros and the Yankees? They all seem to act in the same manner. They tend to sign the same type of players with the same type of contracts. They hire the same sort of managers. You know, generally speaking, and the thing is, is that the Astros aren't as big a market 
as Los Angeles and New York. Don't have the history that the Dodgers and the Yankees have. So they've been the most proactive. And they have had, therefore, the most success out of those three teams. Yet, you wouldn't state that any of these three teams, despite all of the games, all of the consistency they've had, they wouldn't be the team of the data decade. You know, the Giants won three World Series in six years. The Red Sox have won two this, in this decade. And, you know, four in the last 15 years. The Giants and the Red Sox have strove for success. Now that means that at the moment that the Giants over the last two or three years have been hopeless because the players that you know delivered them the three World Series have aged. You know, really the success of the Giants was you know a handful of great pitchers, a handful of great position players, and some good trades, some good signings, some moments of luck. And that's something that will never be forgotten in the Bay Area. You know, the Red Sox have had a couple of awful seasons. A couple of years where they've lost, you know, 90 games. There have been years where they've missed the playoffs. And yet, they've won four World Series with different playing styles, with different philosophies, with different general managers. Who all had different ways of achieving success. You know, the 2017 was a culmination of Theo Epstein's drafts. So you had Dustin Pedroia, Jacoby Ellsbury. You know, Manny Del Carmen. All players have been developed by the Red Sox with a handful of, you know, veterans that from the 2004. So you had Kurt Schilling, you know, Tim Wakefield. You know, the 2014 was built off of you know, free agent signings, you know, trades, so you had key folk in the bullpen so that you wouldn't have the same issues that they had in 2003. You had Kurt Schilling because they needed an extra starting pitcher because of the Yankees, not because they needed that starting pitcher to get in the playoffs to beat the Yankees. That was the entire ethos of the 2004 Red Sox was we have to beat New York to win the World Series. The World Series was an afterthought. It was the beating the Yankees was the most important bit. They were willing to trade Nomar Garcia. They were willing to take that risk because they needed players that were, had the skill set to help them beat the Yankees. So they needed a better defensive shortstop even though that shortstop was nowhere near as, you know, powerful with you know, batting in comparison with Nomar. Uh, 2013 Red Sox World Series champions were veterans signed on two, three-year deals. They weren't going to be a team that were going to be successful for multiple years. 2013, everything that could go right did go right. You know, Johnny Gomes had a good season. Mike Napoli had a great season. It all just coalesced. You know, you had a, you still had players from the 2007 course, so you still had Dustin Pedroia. But the end result was always the same. It was always trying to win the World Series. The 2018 World Series winning Red Sox team, they had some play, you know, young players they had developed in Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley Jr. They had made some key trades at the deadline for you know, Nathan Avaldi, for Steve Pearce. And they had this magical year. You know, they won over 100 games. Most games, you know, for a regular season Red Sox team. They beat a 100-win Yankee team. They beat a 100-win Astros team. They battered a, a you know, magnificently talented Dodger team in LA to finish the series off. They could have easily swept that series. It was the most amazing year of supporting a baseball team. They're one of the, the probably one of the top ten greatest teams of all time. This season finished above five hundred, missed the playoffs. In the same time period, you know, the Yankees have had, you know, at times more resource, more payroll than the Red Sox. You know, 
they've had the same GM. And yet, they've had one title since 2000. You know, they haven't had a World Series appearance in a decade. You know, at what point does the 500 streak actually serve as a purpose for the Yankees winning the next, their next championship banner? All you need to ask yourself is, take over the last, since 2003, since that ball home run from Aaron Boone landed in left field in left field bleachers at Yankee Stadium, who would you rather have been a fan of? The Red Sox or the Yankees? Thank you for listening.